Hello, Sky Watchers. Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Patricia. And I'm Bryony. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the night sky in January in this Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. With winter well underway, the nights are cold, but they are long, which is great news for stargazers. Kicking things off with a bang, the new year begins with a major meteor shower, the quadrantids. The peak of the meteor shower will occur late on the night of the second and sort of into the dawn on the third. So although this meteor shower has been known to produce around 50 to 100 meteors per hour on a clear and dark night, this year the moon is not in a favourable phase. You see, light from the bright waning gibbous moon will unfortunately light up the sky, meaning that some fainter meteors will probably get washed out by moonlight. So most meteor showers are produced when the Earth moves through the dusty trail left behind by comets, but this meteor shower, the Quadrantids, is produced by debris left behind by an asteroid called 2003EH1, and this asteroid takes about five and a half years to orbit the Sun. Meteor showers are named after the constellation they appear to originate from. So, in the case of the Quadrantids, the constellation they were named after is Quadrans Moralis. However, this was actually left off of the list of constellations that were officially accepted by the International Astronomical Union in 1922. The radiant for this meteor shower now lies in the constellation Boötes, near the Big Dipper. After dominating the night sky for months, Jupiter and Saturn get lower above the western horizon each night. For the best part of 2020, Saturn lay to the left of Jupiter in the night sky, but now lies to its right. Jupiter and Saturn are joined by another planet at the beginning of the month, the planet Mercury. Mercury can be quite challenging to spot, but on the 14th, look after sunset and you'll spot the three planets lying along a line on the sky, which should make it easier to spot Mercury. As an added bonus, the three planets will be joined by a waxing crescent moon. However, you will need a clear and unobstructed view towards the west, as all three planets and the moon will be quite low above the horizon. Jupiter and Saturn are slowly making their way to conjunction, with Saturn reaching superior conjunction on the 24th and Jupiter reaching it on the 29th. When a planet reaches superior conjunction, it means that the planet lies along a straight line joining the Sun and the Earth, but the planet is on the opposite side of the Earth from the Sun. Both Jupiter and Saturn will then become morning sky objects, with the best views coming a bit later this year. The red planet Mars continues to shine brightly in the night sky and will be nice and high up in the sky at around 7 in the evening. If you have a telescope, do have a look at Mars as you might be able to see some surface features. Turning our attention outside of our solar system. The winter hexagon is a giant asterism containing six of the brightest stars in the night sky. So this asterism is made up of the stars Rigel, Aldebaran, Capella, Procyon, Sirius, and Pollux. The winter hexagon is easy to spot. 
So you begin your journey at the bright white blue star Rigel, which is in the constellation of Orion the Hunter. Then you make your way anti-clockwise around the sky, hopping from star to star. Have a look at our night sky highlights blog for a handy guide showing you how to star hop around the asterism. There are a number of deep sky objects inside this winter hexagon. Wait until the new moon on the 13th when the night sky will be nice and dark. So if you have a telescope, have a look at some of those hidden astronomical gems inside the winter hexagon, including the Orion and Rosette Nebulae, as well as star clusters such as the rather interestingly named Salt and Pepper Cluster and the Starfish Cluster M38. Taurus is an easy winter constellation to spot, and it can be used to find another prominent winter constellation, Auriga the Charioteer. Find the distinctive V-shaped pattern of stars that forms the head of Taurus the bull, and follow the northern horn of the bull up to the star Alnath, that star at the tip of the bull's horn. Alnath forms part of a circular pattern of stars. This is the constellation Auriga. Interestingly, Alnath used to have the designation of Gamma Aurigae, but the star was reassigned to the constellation of Taurus and is now known as Beta Tauri. The brightest star in Auriga, the star Capella, marks the left shoulder of the charioteer or the goat he carries. Look nearby Capella to spot a tiny asterism consisting of a triangle of stars. The asterism is known as the Kids and represents the Kids baby goats the charioteer is carrying around. For those living in the southern hemisphere and enjoying the warm summer weather there are some wonderful constellations up in the night sky that you can view. Perhaps the most well-known constellation in the southern hemisphere is Crux, also known as the Southern Cross. Even under light polluted skies the bright stars of Crux are easy to spot, especially if you make use of the handy pointer stars of Alpha and Beta Centauri part of the constellation Centaurus. Crux is the smallest of the 88 official modern constellations, but what it lacks in size, it certainly makes up for in terms of wonderful deep sky objects to look at. The Kappa Cruxus cluster, also known as the Jewel Box, or sometimes Herschel's Jewel Box, is an open star cluster containing around 100 stars, the bright red star mixed in with some bright blue ones. English astronomer John Herschel described the cluster as a casket of variously coloured precious stones, which is how the cluster wound up with the name of the jewel box. The Colsac Nebula is a prominent dark nebula and is easy to spot by eye. It appears as a large dark patch in the Milky Way. Although it creates the appearance that there is a lack of stars in that region of the sky, the Colsac Nebula is actually an interstellar cloud of gas and dust that is so thick that it prevents most of the background starlight from reaching observers. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now it's time for our cosmic news. All right. Now, in this part of the podcast, Patricia and I have each chosen uh, a story that has broken in the month of December to talk about, uh, maybe break down a little bit more um, and explain sort of what it maybe means. Now, uh, as well as that, longtime listeners will have noticed that there was something a little bit different about this last Cosmic Diary. You will have noticed something about the Southern Hemisphere 
talking about the constellation Crux, the smallest of the 88 constellations. And that is because last month we had a poll on our Twitter asking, you know, would people be interested in hearing, you know, maybe some stuff about the Southern Hemisphere, you know, seeing as both Patricia and I are from the Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> uh, and we actually had an overwhelming response. 85% of people said that they wanted to hear something about the Southern Hemisphere in the podcast. So we thought, well, I mean, you know, who are we to well, say to the people? It made us very happy. It did. The answer was yes. I think we were maybe a bit hesitant, yeah. perhaps expecting a no, but it was really nice to see that we got, first of all, a fantastic number of votes. Yeah. And then for the majority to say yes, I mean, the public have spoken. So, yes, uh, we will include something about the Southern Hemisphere night skies for the rest of this year. And if it continues to be popular, I mean, Brian, we could. We keep we going. Carry on. We could just keep on going. Yeah, I, I don't see why not. Yeah, well, um, with this Cosmic News, I think, how about you start? What's uh, what, what piece of news have you brought to the table? Although, oh, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Last month's uh, results, you see, obviously, we have a we have a poll that we have every month to see, uh, you know, whose whose story is the most interesting in the listeners eyes. Um, I was warned uh, by Dara when I started you know, to, like took over from her, I was warned that Patricia kind of normally won the uh, the public opinion poll. And I suspect that that may be a running theme uh, now as well. So Patricia, I'm uh, I'm pretty you, sure you I want know, to know. Who, uh, who who won the uh, the the public opinion poll last time, but just you know, let let, let me know. Would you would you like me to provide percentages or just let you know who won? Oh, I mean, do okay, we... it's it's all right. So <clears throat> with eighty two percent of the votes, the winning story was glow in the dark Europa. Yeah, I mean, to be fair. The words glow in the dark and Europa together. I mean, look, you've you've got a winner there. I I, I think that's the key. Just come up with really, really catchy title. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, the key. I'll do my best for the future. Well, you know what? Uh, winners get to go first. So uh, regale us with your uh, this month's story. Uh, I I'm looking forward to it because uh, you've, Briny, as you'll probably pick up, I. I I tend to keep my stories close to home, relatively speaking. So I, it usually involves a solar system in some or other fashion. And so this month I am staying close to home again because we've got some sort of breaking science at the time of this recording. Um, and it's about the sample return uh, from an asteroid. So I'm very excited about that. So uh, let's just take it back a little bit. So on on December 5th, uh, scientists, oh my goodness, scientists from the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency were watching the night sky from your part of the world, Bryony. They were watching the night sky over Australia, uh, waiting for the sign of a fireball. That's but a good fireball, not not out for in the sky. I mean. Not, not end of days fireball, but this is a very precious capsule containing much needed science kind of uh, fireball. So the good news is they saw it, which means that this capsule uh, came into the Earth's atmosphere. Um, they tracked it. Uh, there were lots of tracking stations. I'm sure you're familiar with a couple across uh, Australia as well. So they tracked this capsule. Um, it landed somewhere in the outback and they found it. 
I mean, and... that itself is a feat. I mean, there are whole things in the, yeah, there's, there's so many stories from the like 19th century of explorers going into the outback and being like, I found something and then never being able to find it again. I think what they had to do is they had a, a search area, so able to narrow it down to a search area and then they had to go out to, to that region. As you say, huge scene went out and they found it. And the good news is the capsule was intact. It survived yes. the re-entry. That's always the best part. So, um, and this capsule came from the Hayabusa 2 space rock. And if that name sounds familiar, that's because Hayabusa 2 is a spacecraft that has traveled an incredibly long distance to study an asteroid called Rugu. And more importantly, the whole purpose of the Hayabusa 2 mission was to collect a sample from it. And so this is what this capsule contained. Now, again, sample collection on an asteroid might sound familiar because Dara spoke about this in, in November with NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission, which collected a sample from asteroid Bennu. So this is very exciting. We we're able to collect all of these samples from um, asteroids. Now, at the time of this recording, this is what's really exciting about it and why I say it's breaking news, but at the time of this recording is because when the capsule arrived, the one thing they weren't sure about was did it contain a sample from that asteroid? They they weren't entirely sure. So they, they collected the capsule, they took it back with them, they opened it up, and there's a sample inside. Yes! And breaking as of today, they confirmed that they were expecting a sample size of, I think it was 0.1 grams. They actually managed to get 5.4 grams. What? Wow. So the mission was was really successful yeah, was so very excited like beyond about this. successful quite frankly like my goodness and to think that the whole idea was when they got this original sample if they did collect it they were going to split it out amongst a couple of space agencies and universities across the world so everyone can study a sample from an asteroid so it's probably maybe a nice little festive festive gift so everyone's yeah. going to have a sample of an asteroid that they get to study but i'm pretty sure for anyone listening to the story you might be wondering well, so what? I mean, why are scientists collecting samples of asteroids? And more importantly, what can we learn from having an asteroid sample? Now, the answer to this question means we have to do a bit of time travel. And Bryony, I do love time travel. It's featured in a couple of my stories before, but this time we have to go all the way back to the formation of our solar system. That's how far we're going back in today's story. Because we have to go back to this point where our solar systems are our sun and everything formed from this giant cloud of gas and dust called a nebula. So our sun formed at that very center. And during this formation process, you end up, you know, around this young star that's forming, you end up with an accretion disk. So this disk of material that forms around it. And the thing about these disks of material is that you've got lots of bits of matter in it. And two little bits might clump together. And then they're a little bit bigger, a little bit more gravity. Another bit will come together. And eventually you start having lots of this happening and we then see planets start to form and moons start to form. So all of this was happening inside this disk of material. So that whole process, you know, continued and it played out and that's how we wind up with the solar system as it is today. So star, the planets, the dwarf planets, the moons, etc. But there were some bits left over. So it's just like when you mix up a batch of biscuits. You have, so you mix everything up and you end up with your dough. You always have bits on the edges of the bowl, bits that just didn't go into forming that. Now, 
the leftover bits from that formation of our solar system, we collectively term space rocks. And we quite like that term because space does rock. I'm uh, sorry, uh, terrible uh, joke from Dave. <laughs> I had to throw that in. But okay. yes, so space rocks. And so within that grouping, you find things like your asteroids, your meteoroids, and your comets. I mean, so from what you've said, pretty much what I'm, what I'm getting is that basically we are the biscuit and what we wanted to do was send something out to lick the edges of the bowl. Yes, I like that description. So, yeah, so if you think about it, so you're, you're a wonderful biscuit and you're trying to figure out what went into making this wonderful biscuit. And therefore, by studying the crumbs, you can kind of figure out. Yeah, well, you can think about it because, you know, there's bits that, that, that don't quite combine in bits that don't you know, form along the edges as well. I, I think this, this is a great, um, a great metaphor. I think it's, it's great. And we're inevitably going to leave people hungry after this story. Yeah. <laughs> so we're really sorry about that. You might be craving a biscuit right now. Um, so, yeah, so if we think of asteroids as being that pristine sample. So they if you, if you can find an asteroid. And you can study it, you can get an idea of what those conditions were like when our solar system formed. Now, you have to remember as well that asteroids are the sources of meteors and meteorites. So we know that you know, the, the Earth has been struck by lots of space rocks, mostly during that formation period, but the Earth is still struck by space rocks uh, today. Now, what's interesting is that in trying to understand how the earth came to be as it is today where all this water came from because that's that's a really interesting puzzle where did all this water come from and the current thought i think used to be that it was mostly comets or only comets that yeah. could have brought water to the earth but now the idea that maybe it was a mixture of the two so maybe it was asteroids and comets that actually brought all of this water but not just water organic material and that's key because we think that it's possible that the building blocks of life were brought to the earth via comet and asteroid impacts. So basically, if we can study the composition of an asteroid and maybe comet, uh, comets too, which we've done before, we can maybe start to piece together how life began on earth. So that process, so where the water came from and just how life all of a sudden emerged and flourished. Now, Bryony, I'm sure you know that it's not easy to get a sample from an asteroid. No, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not your sort of, you know, light Sunday activity. No, it's extraordinarily challenging because you you're not there. You're not next to your spacecraft to get no. it to execute this. Everything is planned. There are rehearsals. Of course, your spacecraft has to travel billions, if not, well, millions or billions of kilometers to reach you your asteroid. You can't communicate with it in real time. Nope. So everything has to be pre-planned. And once you give the go signal to do a collection, there is nothing you can do. Because once it starts executing those sequences, it's going to run through. Now, I should point out that this sample return is, in fact, not, it's not the first return of a sample from an asteroid. Again, uh, JAXA which is, um, I probably should have given that from the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, so JAXA. They've done it before because the Hayabusa spacecraft, so this is Hayabusa 2 is Rugu, but Hayabusa returned a sample from asteroid Itakawa back in 2010. But that was a very, very small sample of material. It was less than one milligram. Oof. 
at that point. So it's very tiny. Possible. Now, I told you how much they've they've got for Ruger. Yeah, so Ruger is 5.4. And they were, I think, they, as I said, they were anticipating maybe 0.1. So 5.4 is brilliant. But, Brian, why get another sample from an asteroid if you've already got one? Well, you want to compare them. You want to see if it's the same between asteroids. You want to see if there's any variation there, surely? That's precisely right, because just like we get different types of planets, you get different types of asteroids nice. in our solar system. So you, it's not just one flavor asteroid, there are different types. So asteroids themselves are divided into three classes based on their composition. So exactly what you were saying, so what they're made from. So you have your S-type asteroid, which is um, a stony asteroid, which means they're made up of silicate materials and maybe a little bit of metal, so things like nickel and iron. You then have M-type asteroids, which are metallic, so M for metallic, S for stony. So that's quite nice that you can yeah. memorize that pretty easily. Now, your final class of asteroids are what they call the C-type or chondrite or carbonaceous asteroids. Ooh. Now, these are the most common in our solar system, and they probably consist of clay and silicate rocks and potentially a vast array of organic compounds. That's exciting. Itakawa is an S-type asteroid. Rugu is a C-type asteroid. Whoa. And that's why it's very useful, because if we study the sample from Rugu, might provide some origin um, insight into the origins and evolution of the solar system so that's quite useful but more importantly the building blocks of life so looking at that sample and seeing what's inside a c-type asteroid now the fact that we were able to send a spacecraft first of all all the way out to an asteroid collect a sample have the spacecraft return all the way back to the earth eject said capsule capsule returns through the Earth's atmosphere, survives that, the parachute system works, and it lands in the outback and someone finds it. I think that is brilliant. That is very, very good. And in case someone might be sitting there saying, how can you be absolutely sure that it is a sample from the asteroid? How do you know it's not soil that may have got scooped up during the landing? Well, when they got the capsule back, they realized that the sample had been outgassing. It had been releasing gas because obviously it's gone from nice frigid space to not so frigid Earth. And they've studied the gases that have been released and it does not match the composition of the Earth's atmosphere. So that is how we know it has to be a sample from an asteroid. That is amazing. See, science. Science is amazing. And I think I know that just based on these small bits that have come out, everyone is so excited about the, the sample and what we can learn for it. And all I can say is well done to JAXA for doing an amazing yeah. job on this. And I was watching the whole re-entry portion live and just, it was so weird because I was staring up at a patch of the sky, which is oddly familiar, Bryony. So yeah. like, oh, Southern Hemisphere sky, so pretty. And I know where everything is. <laughs> Yes, the moon's the right way around. Yeah. Uh, that's that's a little joke for anyone who's, yeah. 
yeah, that it, can be the story for another day. We'll we'll yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it on that show. Maybe in um you know for the February fairy podcast. Maybe I'll write something out the moon for that. Yeah, we we can have a bit of fun with that. But yeah, so he's watching this the the video footage uh, or the video feed live, and and all of a sudden you could just see you staring at the clear night sky, and you could all of a sudden you just saw this point of light just pop out and then streak across the sky and you could see it slowing down that was what was so amazing you could see how quickly it came in and how it slowed down that's and, and that just got me really excited and then of course we got the confirmation that everything works so again a big well done to them and i'm certainly looking forward to the rest of the results of the analyses of the sample and as for the little spacecraft itself its mission's not over it's already on to its next destination. So they've sent it to another asteroid, but it's only going to get there in 11 years time. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I mean, look, hey. um, I mean, space is big. Yeah, space is big. You know, things happen and it's super, I think what is really quite incredible is that it can cover so much ground and then they're still going, well, okay, it's done part of its job, but it still has more work. It's it's really good for... that's a good thing, point you've raised, and it's something that I think, if we even think about New Horizons, for example, yeah, Pluto was its primary mission, but but it's working, it's operating. Why stop at Pluto? And, and that's the thing is, is if if a spacecraft is operational, you're going to use it as much as you possibly can. And I think that's I know sometimes people do question why we build spacecraft and that kind of thing and why they cost so much money. But when you, you look at something like there's like one spacecraft, I think it's probably the one that's going to next. I think by the time it gets, it might actually be the third asteroid it's studied. I'm open for correction. I, I suspect it's actually would have studied three by that point. And that's not bad. So it's one spacecraft that's gone to multiple asteroids. So I think that's again, a brilliant design. So um, that's why I saw you, Bryony. That's what I chose for this month. Wow. And I mean, I, you can see how happy it makes. I know no one else can see me, but I just, I, I'm just so excited. <laughs> so Bryony, what have you chosen for us for this month? Well, you see, I have to admit, I, I won't be too upset if you, if you win this month, because you see my story, it's not really a happy story. Oh no. Do we do we do we have to add a, a sort of a advisory like viewer discretion or not suitable yeah. for well well you see uh so Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico oh Brian no I oh. I had to because I we we have to look back on what it's done so um. So for those of you who may or may not be aware, um, Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico had this huge telescope, this huge, huge radio dish that has been operational for uh, 53 years, I think, is, uh, is, is what it was coming up to. There was some damage during some natural disasters, some hurricanes, and there was uh, like a, a cable snapped and it damaged the dish. Now, a few months, ago, actually only about a month ago, uh, it was announced by the National Science Federation or Foundation, um, the NSF in the US, that you know they had conducted some you know sort of evaluations of Arecibo Observatory's dish, and they had looked at it and said, "Look, this is just not fixable. It's going to be too dangerous for us to fix." And everyone was like, "You know, really sad. It's a really sad thing, obviously, for people who are from Puerto Rico. There's a lot of um, Puerto Rican scientists who were saying, you know, even if they're not in astronomy, they were saying, you know, it's just been amazing to have such an amazing thing in their backyard." pretty much 
I think it's just because of the impact. So, I mean, you, you might even be touching on this, but most people probably won't realize that they would have seen Arecibo <laughs> in a number of feature films, in, I mean, including uh, James Bond, Goldeneye. Who can, who can forget who can that forget, classic scene? Who can forget the fantastic lair there? That is Arecibo Observatory. Yeah, and also famously, I think, for all people who have a passion for astronomy and space science contact. Of course. So, well, yeah, exactly. It's, it's you know, in popular culture, in people's lives and in science, as I'll, I'll sort of go through in a bit. So, I'll, you know, after there was, you know, this report that came out that was, you know, it is structurally not sound enough to conduct repairs, and you know, high risk to people if they wanted to fix it. A couple of weeks after that, at the beginning of December, uh, yeah, the worst happened and another cable snapped sending the receiver which uh, sort of is suspended above the dish sending it careening onto the dish and quite frankly just spelling the end to Arecibo it's I'm gonna um leave a link in the podcast description to a a video of it being oh yeah the um the was this the drone footage I think that was a couple of different ones so they set up a camera um, in November that was looking at the tower that they were worried was going to go next basically in the because they thought well this this might happen we want to be able to capture it if, if it does so we can see what what happened you can see it from that point of view and from there you see the receiver swing down um and it's it's heartbreaking honestly i was just i was <laughs> um, just about to say that it's the most heartbreaking footage it is, it is. and then anyone's it, gonna see. the drone footage is Oh, it's also very sad because it's not looking down at this it's looking at the tower and you just see this sort of you know a few things start to go you, you can see um where there used to be a cable um and then next to it a cable just breaks and you see the cable just swing away and the person who was part of the drone managed to then turn it around and you see the receiver on the dish and it's oh i mean the best thing about this is that no one was hurt yeah no one, no one was harmed, and that is really good because that was why they weren't going to be able to repair it, just because they were not just cost, but also concerned for human safety. Uh, and I mean, it's kind of proves that they had a point. <laughs> you know, they they were saying, you know, we, we we can't do this because the remaining cables could snap at any time, and that's a significant risk. There's no yeah. way to fix that without putting people in danger. And then, as if to underscore that point, they could snap at any time. It snapped. This is obviously, this is really sad news, but I really wanted to bring this story to the podcast because of all the amazing work that Arecibo Observatory has done. Because I, I knew a bit about it. I, to be honest, I remembered it mostly uh, from Goldeneye, to be honest. Um, I knew it as, you know, it was a great radio telescope. I knew it worked with SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Yeah. I'm not a radio astronomer. I don't work in radio astronomy. I never have. So I didn't really know much about it until I started looking into it. And my goodness, this is like crazy. It's like, thanks to work on Arecibo, multiple Nobel Prizes have been won. I mean, I'm just going to do a slight link to my story because Arecibo did uh, studies on uh, near-Earth asteroids as well. So Most recent stuff, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which it's quite sad actually. It's sort of like, oh well, you know, we that's one less thing looking at near Earth asteroids. But literally months after it was built, you know, in the first like year of a telescope's life, you're still you're still sort of calibrating, doing that. Not Arecibo. Arecibo discovered the rotation period of Mercury. 
because before that it was thought that Mercury was tidally locked to the sun. So it was thought that it takes 88 days for it to orbit the sun, so it was thought that it spun once every 88 days. But thanks to radio observations from Arecibo, we saw that actually it's spinning at a faster rate. It's spinning uh, once, about once every 59 okay. days. I can never remember if it's 58 or 59, but there we go. Yeah, 59, yeah. Yeah, so just straight up, that's amazing. It's actually done quite a lot on uh, of work on Mercury. It found the polar regions of Mercury. Um, it was the, the, the first thing to discover that Mercury does have little bits of ice at its north and south poles, which is quite amazing. It's not what you would maybe expect from a radio telescope, but it did. Uh, you know, more things that it's done in case you needed more than just sort of in our solar system with the near-Earth asteroids uh, and Mercury. But it also uh, has done a lot of work on pulsars. And in fact, it was for Arecibo that they discovered the first ever pulsar. As well as that, it was also the first, um, just discovered the first of a particular kind of mega mazar, which is a, a huge uh, sort of well, mazar. Mazar is uh, similar to a, a laser, but instead of uh, sort of a laser, we think of it as like man-made uh, emitting light. It's a big astronomical object that is emitting microwaves. There's more to it than that, but we're not going to go into it here. No. <laughs> it's done so much. It was also the first thing to give us maps of Venus. Because you see from the outside, in visual light, Venus is just a cloud. It's obscured by the clouds. And so it was only with Arecibo's um, radar images that we were able to see the surface. So it was because of Arecibo that we were able to look at the surface of Venus. It I mean, that's already impressive work on two difficult planets in our solar system to study. The, I mean, the breakthroughs in the work that Arecibo did, it's just amazing. Exactly. And I mean, I still haven't even listed. There's still more things that have won Nobel Prizes that I haven't listed. This I know. This makes the story so, so sad. <laughs> I know. I know it is so sad and it's it's really heartbreaking there's so many people you know love it because it's it's not it wasn't just a, a telescope it's really amazing I mean it was the, the reason why it is placed where it is is because of this you know massive beautiful natural basin and so you know I, I've never been there but I you know, see these pictures and it's just it's stunning the natural beauty that is around it is incredible. It looks amazing and maybe I, th I think that's what, why this is so sad for the astronomy community because it did become that icon of astronomy that people, that astronomers could share with members of the public because people, as I, I mean, it popped up in all sorts of popular culture references, but there was always a nice way that people, you could bring up a picture and people would recognize it even though they didn't know what it was for, but they would go, I've seen that somewhere. And so it is sad that that is now gone. But we shouldn't forget, Bryony, that it did send a message into space, didn't it? It did. It did. It sent. It sent multiple messages to space, actually. But it did. It sent. Oh, which? Uh, what was the message that it sent? Um, the Voyager something was it? Message. It's. I mean, it's an interesting looking message. If anyone wants to see it, uh, sort of. Uh, if you just do a quick Google search, you can see the message that was uh, transmitted by Arecibo and see, see if you can figure out what was said, yeah, because I, I think, was it Carl Sagan? Yes, Carl, Carl Sagan. That message? Yeah. And it's, it, it, it's, so it's, um, it's not the same stuff that's on the sort of plaque, which you, you may have seen that, that's on, that's what I'm thinking, I'm thinking of the, yeah, the, oh, the, the, the golden plaque. records on, on yes. the Voyager, yeah. 
Yeah, so it's uh, it's similar to that, but it's not quite the same. But it's basically the, the idea is that anyone who is able to intercept it, we know on some level how they, you know, what they can understand because they can understand you know, radio. So they, you know, that tells us a bit about what they know. And so mm. working backwards from there, sort of going, okay, well, how do we communicate what the base units are for us? Yeah. How do we do that? You know, like how, how, how do we, how do we, convey information in a form we, that they can understand when all we know is that they can detect radio signals you know yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. and that's why i say if if people are interested do have a look at it and just imagine you are an alien civilization and you've picked up this message that's come through and, and you know you're looking at it see if you can figure out what that message is telling you and, and, and that's part of the challenge is how would we communicate with aliens, Bryony, with an intelligent alien civilization? And it's the same with the Voyager, um, with the golden records that you're thinking about as well. I think maybe for both messages, they use pulsars to help to yes. sort of give Pulsar them an idea of where our solar system is located as they're using pulsars. So I think that's quite nicely illustrated on the golden record. Is it, yeah, they used it for, um, I'll say they also use that for, um, um, for time as well. Um, because oh, yes, yeah, because pulsar timing—it's it's yeah. very precise, so it's a lot easier to do that. Yeah. Actually, speaking of pulsars, <laughs> another thing that Arecibo did because looked for a lot of pulsars, it found the first um, millisecond pulsar. Before that, we were thinking that you know, pulsars were restricted to certain sizes. But if they're restricted to certain sizes, then it's like okay, so if they're doing that, then how do they, you know, like how, how do they get there? Or yeah. you know, can they do this? Can they accrete matter? Like how does that work? And so. You know, by them finding this millisecond pulsar, they were able to sort of answer a lot of those questions about what pulsars can and cannot do when they interact with other matter, which is just incredible. I mean, look, honestly, I could go on and on about the stuff that, like the, the science Arecibo has done. I, I fell into a bit of a rabbit hole today reading about Arecibo and pulsars, to be honest. I I can only imagine, Bryony, because yeah. it's just such an, it's such an interesting read. I mean, I'm blown away just by what you've said because I it's weird I kind of had an idea of what the science was that was done with our receiver but I didn't realize just how much and how varied yeah. that science was just from that one you know one dish that it's iconic iconic that I know and that's that just I I can't tell you how broken I am about it Brian no, I, I, I know feel it's Oh, it just, it just, I felt that it deserved a place on the podcast just because it's, you know, we, you know, we, we celebrate, uh, you know, we talk about um, you know, current events and that sort of stuff. But I think sometimes it's nice to reflect, you know, I mean, I had spoke about the you know, Nobel Prize uh, in, my, in my first uh, timeless podcast, but I, you know, I just, it, I don't know I, I, how. You've done a brilliant job. Yeah. But, you, you've paid tribute to such an iconic telescope and it's going to be sorely missed and i, it really I think is. the impact probably will be felt for for some time and oh i just i encourage everyone i mean go and watch golden eye go and watch contact and have a look at that iconic iconic dish and then read up on the science it's done and you won't be disappointed. No, you won't. I mean, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll leave a link as well in the podcast description to some uh, notes about um, like the, the, the Nobel Prize notes that have been won using data from Arecibo. Um, 
I'm not sure I'll be able to link to you know them all because I, there's quite a few. Um, but I'll link to a couple of them and I'll link the um, the, the like general education notes because uh, they oh, are that's brilliant, fascinating. Bryony, if you if you wanted to tug at heartstrings, you certainly have done with your your story today, and I think it, I, I think it was a fitting tri- tribute and it needed to be done. So thank you, Bryony, for for that brilliant story, which means. We're at the end of this month's Cosmic News. So we've got two brilliant stories for you to listen to. And of course, for you to vote for in this month's <laughs> Twitter poll. I have a sneaky suspicion Bryony's story might steal it away. Um, but it's... it's look, only... look, I mean, I, I don't know if, if I could vote for Goodbye Arecibo because... <sighs> Well, we won't call it goodbye to Arecibo. We'll call it thank you, Arecibo. So, well, there we have it. So you'll have the two stories to vote for uh, when the poll goes live. That will be at the beginning of the month on our Twitter account. So please do keep an eye out for that. We, of course, will also provide you with a link uh, to our Night Sky Highlights blog. So please, if you've not looked at it before, please do have a look at the blog. It will feature some uh, handy uh, screenshots showing you where the various objects are that are up in the sky that we've spoken about. So that's a great, it's a great visual guide. And you'll find our blog on our website at rmg.co.uk. We also have so many other wonderful resources. We have our brand new YouTube channel. So if you haven't had a look at that yet, please do. It's brilliant and it's filled with all of our wonderful videos that we have made. And of course, because Brian and I are part of the sort of formal learning team at the observatory, there are a number of brilliant uh, education videos, so animated videos that cover a number of topics in astronomy and answer some of the big questions we have in the universe. But with that, Bryony, I think we will bring this month's Cosmic Diary to an end. And to all our listeners, we'll see you, or I say see you, we'll, we'll, we'll meet you all again um, in next month's podcast. So until then, take care and, of course, enjoy the wonders of the night sky. Thank you. Thank you.